This is the Hunt for Wellness podcast with Sean Knowles, 44, Bing. It's another great day for wellness, and this is Bones bringing the packs of F3 Nation the latest strategies and tips to accelerate their king and optimize their queen. Health is a journey and requires you to take a proactive approach on a daily basis. Knowing exactly what to do and how to do it will help you achieve it faster. Each week, we are going to be interviewing the leading health and wellness experts, sharing inspiring stories from the packs, and diving into the latest research to help you optimize your health. So get ready as we embark on your hunt for wellness. Well, welcome back to another edition of the Hunt for Wellness podcast. This is Dr. Tunis Hunt, otherwise known as Bones in the Gloom and Pax. I am ecstatic and super excited about today's show, today's guest, and really kind of diving deep into the physiology of the human body. Um, it's not often that I, also, I get to speak with another uh, proponent of wellness and health to the degree that our guest has really dove into their own health. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and forewarn everybody. We might get into the weeds a little bit today and really kind of dive deep into, you know, physiology, how the body works, uh, but all for to kind of hopefully open up your eyes about what's possible, why data is important and how making small changes or even changes at all can make radical change uh, with your overall health. And so um, without further ado, I'm going to bring in my guest today. I have Sean Knowles, otherwise known as Bing in the Gloom. Uh, welcome to the show, my friend. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, before we get too far down the road, I just also want to just throw this out there. We have had a Bing on the show previously. We've had a couple other Bing, or, or excuse me, a previous Bing on twice, actually, on on two previous episodes. So it's not our, our main man being from South Florida, uh, who's the cue of expansion uh, or, or for, for the nation, but instead a, a fellow brother here in the Cape Fear region of North That's Carolina right. being. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got plugged in in F3, uh, where you post and, and why the name being. Sure. So I post here in Wilmington, Cape Fear, uh, region, and I had remembered Cape uh, F3 from several years ago. Some friends of mine at a church I attended, a couple pastors, they attended F3 years and years ago, and at that time, I was um, big into CrossFit, and so I didn't take time to um, you know, investigate F3, but during the COVID lockdowns, I was busy uh, working out, setting my own routines, exercising at the house, and after, you know, six, nine, 12, 18 months, that gets a little monotonous. And I was looking for something just different to throw into my exercise routine. And I remembered um, F3. And so I you know, did a quick Google search. And I, I say that purposefully. I did a quick Google search for uh, F3 and found the, the guys at Baywatch and Riceville Beach. Showed up, I think it was maybe May or June of 2021. And um that's where I started. And so I got the name Bing because they asked me who brought you. And I said, nobody. I just searched online and then it, they stuck me with Bing, even though, you know, 
I yeah, so, uh, even though that has nothing to do with yeah, your career or anything that, like that. Well, I'm actually, assuming. ironically, ironically, it does. I, I am oh, a software okay. engineer by trade, so I am. <laughs> so yeah, that is actually um, it was uh, ironic. I, I let it go. It was fun. That's funny. Well, I mean, the the other being that's been uh, David Kelly, the, the other yeah. one that uh, has been featured on the show. You know, if you've ever heard his story, it's kind of a similar concept of comparing Google and or, you know, you're not Google, you're Bing. And the fact that you used Google to search the guys yeah. using Bing. So <laughs> it's funny how uh, Bing has kind of just been classified as the opposite of Google or whatever uh, in the gloom. So uh, warning to possible F and G's. If you go out there and say that you've found uh, us on Google Maybe you'll also be a being yeah, down right. the road. Be or, the third, fourth, and fifteenth. <laughs> yeah, who knows how many's out there? I think uh, I was briefly telling you. I know that there's a handful of other bones out there, and uh, probably most of them are chiropractors like myself. So uh, maybe one day we'll have a bones-only show where I have whoever's bones out there in the nation. We'll get on the we'll get on the podcast and we'll talk That'd about chiropractic stuff uh, as it relates to our own uh, discipline and what we do. So got involved with F3 through the Google search, uh, started posting. Now, are you still doing CrossFit 2 and F3? Or are you doing just F3? What's going on with um, that? You know, some of my story, I had stopped CrossFit back uh, 2016, 17-ish, um, and then worked out through uh, the various places I was working on my own or with, with some friends, colleagues at work. Um, so I, I still program similar workouts for myself. And then at the house, and then I'll hit, you know, our AOs in the area several times a week. Got it. So you're personally lifting, I'm assuming, when you say programs at home. Correct. Yep. Resistance yep. So training, weight training. Throughout, um, you know, and we can get into it, you know, throughout uh, 2021, I switched to primary calis primarily calisthenics, bodyweight exercises here at the house, pull-ups, push-ups, kettlebells, box jumps, you know, animal crawls and lunges all across the yard. Uh, thankfully, I have a fence. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but it was always uh, incorporating some resistance training. So, you know, deadlifts or squats. Um, I, I need to program them in more. I'm probably doing them once a week now. I'd like to get in at least twice. But uh, that that I do at the house and then or, or into the office if I go into the office and uh, F3 the rest of the week. Yeah, you take a similar approach to what I'm doing currently, uh, personally, myself. Um, you know, I've kind of had an iteration of fitness and, you know, over the years and certainly before F3, the gym was, you know, my outlet. And then when I got into F3, it was a hybrid approach and then eventually was all F3. And then you kind of go through that evolution and then you realize that there might be some other things that you're missing that you have personal goals with that maybe just going to boot camps or or whatever i always tell people that beauty of f3 and the magic of it is it's peer-led and non-professional but it's also the downside sometimes if there are some specific goals for a guy uh because you don't know what the key is going to call and you don't right. have a, a a program so you've kind of done what I've done and, and a lot of guys that I know that really kind of take fitness to the next level, which is kind of dialing in your personal things on top of F3, but use F3 for all the perks that F3 provides, which is the, the, the socialization, the camaraderie, Absolutely. you know, I still, that's, I still get pushed in the gloom. Yeah. That's one of the biggest benefits that I've seen is um, the meeting new guys, hanging out, you know, making new acquaintances and friends um, that's, that's great. It's, it's 
a good experience. I brought others in as a result. And that's one of the main benefits I see. Um, and not only that, but even though I program my own workouts and try to vary it as often as possible, I'll still, there'll be F3 workouts that I would have never done on my own. I mean, the July 4th convergence um, last year, I think it was last year, you know, we, we met at Riceville Beach. We swam over to what we call Palm Tree Island. We work out, work out on the island, swim back. You know, I would have never done that on my own. I just, one, don't want to drown. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing that pushes you, particularly with me, a lot of the F3 guys like to run, and um, I'm not a fan, but I'll do it with them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we're getting – uh, discover more similar and similar as, as we have this conversation. I'm the same way. I, I will run. Um, I know it's a part of the fitness journey that I'm on, but I never like it. Um, but, and, and, and certainly I have to put myself in scenarios. I'm currently training for the Blue Ridge Relay coming up in September. And uh, out of pride, I jumped on a, uh, a six-man team, which I, I instantly regretted. And so now I'm really looking at a lot of miles, which is really pushing me outside of my comfort zone. But if it wasn't for these other guys in the gloom, uh, there's no way I'm going out right. there and, and, and doing some of those things. And I think we all gravitate towards what we're comfortable with, what we're uh, used to doing. And it's nice to have this, uh, the, you know, the, the, the mix up, if you will, uh, and, and, and coming up around the corner here and a plug for, uh, the iron packs challenge. I mean, those guys put, put together some brutal things that there's no way a single individual by themselves would put themselves probably through any of that. But the fact that you have, you know, 20, 30, sometimes 50 guys in, in a particular morning or region right. doing that with you, uh, you certainly push those envelopes. So yeah, I think well, the good. Iron packs, uh, last year was my, cause I just started June or July or, you know, late summer. And, uh, that was my first experience with murder bunnies. So I, that's, a, oh, yeah. that's burned into my mind. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that that's, a, that's, a, that's a crowd pleaser across yeah. the nation is the murder bunnies. Uh, uh you know, there, there's some sadistic packs out there that just come up with some crazy things. And, uh, I love it. I, th I think that's what makes F3 so unique and, and fantastic. So, all right. Well, so now that we kind of know some of what you're doing, physically and, and from a fitness standpoint, the real reason I wanted to bring you on the show today and kind of dive into is I, I learned of you from a PAX in your region, uh, another PAX member who I was uh, talking back and forth with uh, as, as far as kind of a potential guest on the show, uh, kind of just brought your name up in passing and said, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to be on your show, but at the same time, here's another PAX member that I think that uh, you would resonate with and, and the nation needs to hear from. And he shared with me a document that you had provided or pr put up. And, and maybe you can tell us the origin of the, of the reason for the document and, and how that came to be. But it took me about three minutes of reading that document to, to completely get excited about reaching out to you and say, hey, this is the type of conversation we really haven't had on the podcast up to this point and wanted to dive into it. And so just to kind of tease it out, listeners, and uh, is uh, Bing had gotten some lab testing done and identified some needs that he wanted to work on and then really kind of went on a journey to kind of figure out what it would take to move the needle and move him towards that goal and, and did an excellent job of 
of, of tracking and, and finding data points and, and tweaking things to, to really kind of fine tune where he wanted to be and continue to want to be. And it's a journey. And, and, and I always say that, but uh, that's kind of what we're going to dive into. We're going to dive into his own personal journey of what he's done and why that's been important to his life. And just kind of tease out some facts out there for those of you who might be interesting in what I term biohacking. It's the idea of really kind of finding ways to accelerate your own personal health um, based on lab data points and some of the things that are available to us through testing and diagnostic uh, procedures and so forth. So with that in mind being, with that teaser, um, maybe you can go back to A, the, the, the document that you have and, and, and how that came to be. And then let's kind of start back uh, a couple of years ago okay. with that first lab, why you got it and what that um, in, indicated to you as far as what you needed to do. Sure. So uh, first, I would like to say I'm going to take this section of the podcast, record it and play it back for my wife and tell her, I told you so. See, <laughs> someone else does care. <laughs> um, so in 2020, I went for my annual physical. I get one every year. And it was September, October of 2020. And in, during that physical, Dr. Which I've seen for 10 years, says, high five, everything's great, Mr. Knowles. You know, all your numbers are great, all your labs are great. See you next year. And you know, I, I was I was sitting there and I said, Well, I'm here, I've got the time. Is there anything else that you can do? I'm a I'm a data geek, I like it. Test me. And he said, Well, sometimes after 40, guys get a calcium heart scan, a CAC scan. Um, but you're such low risk, it's not even warranted. So I wouldn't, I'm not going to tell you to do it, not needed. And I, I asked, well, what is it? How much is it? And when I learned it was 150 bucks out of pocket, insurance doesn't cover, and takes five minutes. I said, yes, I have both of those things. And so I went for a calcium heart scan and got the scan sometime early November. Results came just a few days before Thanksgiving. And I remember it becoming before Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving Thanksgiving morning of 2020, I was Googling the difference between heart attack and panic attack. I, I, I was that morning before going to see my family, I was concerned I'm either having a panic attack or a heart attack. And the reason for that was um, the score that came back on that calcium scan put me in the top 95% for my age, meaning uh, it, it, reflected a 13% increased risk of a cardiac event over 10 years. Now that's not a 13% chance. Those, you know, stats guys, they're listening. It's a 13% increased risk, which is still small, but more than I wanted. And I had, I, I've, I've learned, I was honestly a little cocky about my health through the mid 2000s, 20, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm crossfitting hard, probably one of the stronger pound for pound guys that I knew. Now, that's not everyone, right? But I'm, I mean, I was throwing some weight for a little guy and relatively cocky. I mean, I had 10 years of my doctor saying blood panels are perfect, right? And then to go from two weeks earlier hearing my doctor say everything's perfect, I wish everyone would do what you did, to 13% chance of increased, you know, you know, 
an MI event. That was it hit me like a ton of bricks. It really did. And I I don't ever recall feeling like that. Um, so at that point, I decided I have to figure out what's going on. What caused it? What is this? I know nothing about it. Um, well, I was starting at ground zero. And so, you know, I, I'm a software engineer by trade. I'm big into data. That kind of stuff comes naturally for me and decided I need to just figure out what is it? Who are the experts? And that's where a lot of my, um, not confusion, but uh, frustration began is because I, what I found was there were many people saying or proposing solutions and no one has an answer right now um, that I can see clearly stated. There's lots of ongoing research and uh, theories and competing theories. And of course you spill into the, the dietary theories and that are opposing each other. And it, it became, um, I mean, I was spending six hours a night after work. So I'd work the day, get off work, research for five to six hours. And I, I would do this through, through December. Um, wow. Yeah. It, it really hit me hard. And, um, my wife, thankfully, she was patient with me, understood, you know, that it, it was a slap in the face and the rug pulling out from under me. But the document was my attempt for myself to make sense of the competing bits of information. Because what I found, so I immediately, I immediately thought, okay, cardiac, calcium scan, heart disease, calcium bad, eat oatmeal, go vegan. I mean, that was you know, that was my initial response. I was like, wait a second. I don't want to make a decision based on what I think. And so I want to make a decision on what I know. And so th then I, you know, I, I would read, make some notes, read, make some notes. And then in my own mind, I had trouble remembering which of these competing theories was I, was I following at the moment? Which of these things was I practicing or doing? And, and, so the document became my decision tree history for my own health. And that's how it started. And it, it started as just a few bullet points of, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Um, and then what I began seeing is that I could position it so that it was at least legible <laughs> by someone else. And top to bottom, it, it pretty much shows my, um, my history of how I've thought through it, um, what topics I was tackling to begin with, the results against those topics and trends over time. So that sort of helps me look back and go, oh yeah, that's what Sean was thinking, you know, in 2021. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the importance of putting things down and documenting it because, you know, we all, we always think we're going to remember something in the future and, and we never do, right. not certainly accurately. And, and so I'm sure this has been a living, breathing document for you to just kind of walk you through this process. Uh, and I'm glad you wrote it because like I said, it was really an opportunity uh, or made it much easier for me to kind of understand your, your journey by reading through it versus just trying to gather all the information verbally from you or even somebody else that may have heard your story. So I want to kind of go back a little bit. Um, you mentioned getting this clean bill of health and, and you put it in the document that's uh, historically speaking, 
your cholesterol levels were always low uh, in you know, the 160s and 170s, certainly within normal range across the board of whatever belief system you have on cholesterol and, it, and, and, and overall health. And so um, unless you had a, do you, did you have a family history of heart disease? No, my, okay. I have a single grandfather who died um, in his late 60s or 70s. And that's, that's it. My, my, gotcha. my dad's still living, grandparents on both sides just passed away recently in their late 80s. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's no, no, no family history. Okay. So to that, to, to the doctor's point initially, he's looking at you going, you don't fit the bill Correct. to get this additional lab because yep. chances are it's not going to discover anything that's going to be worthwhile for you to look at. Um, it's probably a waste of your time, certainly yep. a waste of your money and, you know, uh, don't worry about it. Is there a reason you wanted this particular lab? I mean, did you had, had you had heard about this lab and Here, the risk factors? None. I zero knowledge of it. The first time hearing about that lab, the CAC scan was in the office when he said some guys who are at high risk have a CAC gotcha. scan after 40 and uh, up until then, I had no clue what it was. I had to ask him, you know, what it is. And and to you know, to his credit, the Framingham algorithm that assesses heart cardiac health, I score perfectly on. Sure. Even right now, I mean, right now I still still score great on it. But even then, in um, you know, 2020, it was the lowest risk. Yeah. So there was yeah, no so reason for him to, to do it. No, absolutely not. Um, though that's just interesting that you chose it. I, you know, obviously I've been made aware of it, um, you know, several years ago and, and, and obviously work with patients that use it. And, but I also know of it too, because of something we'll talk about as we go along here, um, because there's some factors that happen with cholesterol and hap and things based on dietary trends. And, and it's one of those things that it's, it's a nice test to have because it, clarifies that despite maybe increasing levels of certain numbers that are sometimes looked at as negative, right. it's still kind of grounds it as showing actual risk factor. And so I've heard other doctors and podcasters, you know, that are proponents of, let's say a ketogenic or a carnivorous diet um, that maybe is using a little bit more saturated fat that causes <clears throat> LDL cholesterol specifically to rise sometimes the risk factor concern is, is brought up. And this is one of those labs that you can get that actually kind of shows behind the scenes of actual plaque buildup. That's and that's kind of what this does, right? I mean, we didn't really kind of go into that, but that's the purpose of the scan. It's essentially scan, yeah. looking at calcium levels in the blood so that, or it's a, it's a CT scan, this is, right? This is a CT scan yeah. of the heart um, yeah. identifying calcified plaque. So yep. it, is, it is taking an x-ray or picture, you know, CT of your arteries and the calcium that's the hardened portion of your arteries lights up, you know, like a, like a flash on, on sure. the image and they measure it volumetrically. So both um, size and density, and that is indicative of previous damage to your artery that your body has repaired and the underlying cause of that damage is always the question right? Right. Your, body, your body is built to make those repairs and it does we're glad that it does um, what you want to do is figure out 
what the underlying cause is. And that was my, my motive. Starting. Yeah. So that's a great segue um, to kind of continue this conversation because to your point, you're one of those guys that, well, so <clears throat> let me, but, so you get this scan, it indicates that you're at a higher risk and just based on your document, maybe you can clarify your doctor's response to that is let's put you on a statin drug. Yeah. Is, yeah. I mean that there was no discussion. There was no, it was just statin. And, and that with, is the protocol. You know, I have a hard time, you know, faulting him for following the letter of the law. Um, it's frustrating to me. I want well, to and, and it's a little confusing because, I mean, your, your lab results showed like 165 for your cholesterol levels. So to put you on a medication, that's the only job of it is to lower that number even further. Just, it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and that is kind of unfortunately the problem with the dogma and the paradigm of sometimes these, uh, the medical minded thinking without looking, you know, under the covers, if you will. And, and so I, yeah, I will throw in, I, I do want to throw in, you know, for those listening, I am not an expert. I am a software engineer by trade. I have no medical background. You know, this is simply me trying to digest as much information as humanly possible, way more than I can ever imagine I would be doing. And feeling my way through it, making my best decisions and assessments and choices as I go. I am ready to make changes or I remain open to investigating, you know, just about everything. So that, that's where I'm at. I just didn't want to go without that being said. Yeah, no. And like, I nothing I say you. is gospel here. That's <laughs> no, and, 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 and neither here. I mean, like I said, everybody's individualized, uh, you know, disclaimer for the podcast. This is not medical advice. And this is just us having a conversation about right. what makes sense to us and what we've tried personally and what we have seen in our own lab results and, and data points. But uh, I wanted to kind of bring that up because unfortunately somebody that's not as in tune with their own health or willing to do the work or whatever, they could have easily fallen into that trap of, well, it sounds like I just need to lower my cholesterol. Right. But we both know that high cholesterol wasn't probably the underlying factor for the plaque in the first place because you hadn't had high cholesterol right. data, you know, historically for the last 15, 16 years based right. on lab results. So it's, we know it's not that. So that, yes. And that's where my frustration, I was so frustrated at that one thing. <laughs> yeah, no, and I don't blame you because that it just doesn't make any sense. So you said, well, thanks doc for the suggestion, but that's not, where I want to start, I would rather kind of understand why plaque gets built up in the first place and what mechanisms could be doing that. And you, you mentioned the word inflammation in the past and, sure. or already, and, and that's really what it does, right? I mean, people don't realize that cholesterol in and of itself is primarily made by our bodies. You know, the cholesterol that we get tested, um, you know, if we get a, a lab done and they look at cholesterol majority of that cholesterol that's showing up is not because of the diet it's not due to you eating cholesterol it's not dietary cholesterol as much as you, it's your body producing cholesterol for a purpose correct and our livers create cholesterol it's made 
Uh, cholesterol uh, is part of the, the bilipid layer of every cell in our body. Uh, all our cells are comprised of two fat layers and cholesterol comp uh, makes that up. And to your point already, when we have damage or inflammation in our body that needs repair, well, that's the job of cholesterol. That's what it does. It goes and repairs that and it creates these waxy substances and plaque. And so plaque's not necessarily bad as much as too much plaque or more specifically oxidized plaque. That's when people get in trouble. So, um, you know, you, you decided to look deeper into sure. what was maybe causing some of that plaquing, hence inflammation. And so you, you put on your paper and I agree with all five points and, and we can kind of dive into that. Yeah. You said, um, high probability is due to too much cholesterol. That was, yep. that could be a component. It could be due to something we call insulin resistance. Yep. It could be due to something called oxidized LDL. Mm -hmm. And most people are familiar with the term LDL, but it's just low density lipoprotein. It's a carrier of cholesterol. It's yep. one of the carriers. Um, insufficient magnesium slash K2, which is a vitamin. And then Number five was high intensity exercise. So almost too much intensity or too much strain on the system, yep. which could create inflammation, which then would require your body to produce more cholesterol, if you will, hence more placking. So um, why don't we kind of walk through that process of how you handled those, those different things? Um, obviously, we, we've already talked about real quickly cholesterol that wasn't historically an issue for you. So very early on, it sounds like you dismiss that as the high probability. Yeah. And, and these, these, the five things I, these five items I picked out in that November, December timeframe, doing as much research as I could. And the studies I read, the discussions I found, the uh, research being conducted, these five things were always discussed or they seemed most prevalent. So I said, okay, well, I'm just going to pick these top five and see what happens. And like you okay. said, you know, when I saw that um, my cholesterol was never high, I said, well, okay, that one will just set that aside. I'll keep it here, keep an eye on it, watch it because somebody's talking about it. But then well, I'm going to really focus on those those other four. Um, insulin resistance is was a big one. Um, I don't know how much you want to go into it. Uh, I, I like to explain it to uh, people who are asking me about it. Um, it is... Uh, so when you eat carbohydrates, sugars, your body releases, or you know you have glucose in your blood, your body produces insulin to bring that um, glucose back down. Here in the land of plenty, right, we eat sugars in the morning, and then we release, release some insulin. And then by the time it starts to bring our glucose down, we eat some more sugar, and it spikes our insulin again. And then we eat some more sugar, and it spikes our insulin again. We never give our bodies a chance to um, recover. And over time, your body... The other organs in your body say that I've had enough. I cannot respond to insulin anymore. I'm done. Because insulin's job is to take that sugar, that glucose out of your body and store it into fat cells. That's one of those major purposes. And so it says, I have nowhere else to put it. I'm done. And then welcome diabetes. And I think, you know, my, my opinion is that's one of the reasons type 2 diabetes was formerly called adult onset diabetes because it takes decades for it, you being insulin resistant for it to set in and become diabetes. So um, in, in researching that, and, and as background, my fasting glucose 
like my cholesterol, has always been perfect. Um, so fasting glucose was great. Uh, I, I became aware of Dr. Kraft, who was an insulin researcher. And over the, I think, 80s and 90s, even into maybe early 2000s, I forget when he passed away. But um, Kraft is his name, like the cheese. And his research worked to test insulin responses rather than glucose. Because fasting glucose, by the time your, your fasting glucose is elevated and the doctor says, okay, you're pre-diabetic, by the time that has occurred, you have been insulin resistant and had elevated insulin most likely for years. So Kraft pointed out and demonstrated, yes, there are different types of individuals, different types of insulin responses, and anything other than, let's say, this type 1 is um, abnormal. And his, I think his thoughts were, he may have been one of the first to say, uh, you know, 20, his assessment was 25% of the population has is normal response. They're great metabolically. We know that roughly 25% are diabetic. And then he said, my assessment is the other 50 are pre-diabetic or undiagnosed. So based on his research. So I went to my doctor and said, all right, doc, I would like a five-hour insulin assay. And he had never ordered one, you know, didn't know what one was. I, I literally had to find on Quest Diagnostics, the lab, the codes, and say, here's, this is exactly the test I would like for you to order for me. And again, you know, you don't need it, but well, you're either going to order it for me or I'm going to go get it myself. And lo and behold, I come back and I have an abnormal insulin response. Now, it's not the, you know, severe ones. It's only type two, which is, it's on a spectrum, of course. Um, but it was not a normal insulin response. And that, I, I honed in on that because my father is type two diabetic and his mother is type two diabetic. So there's a history of diabetes, and my um, his siblings, most of them are diabetic, and you know that was an indicator for me. Well, maybe that could be a genetic thing that I've inherited, and something to watch for. So, in getting that test, I demonstrated for myself that there is a potential cause, an explanation of of the CSC score. The insulin resistance, of course, um, increases overall inflammation oxidizes the LDL, um, damages the LDL, and then if there is an issue in your artery, um, that oxidized LDL gets stuck there, and that causes the plaque. So that's the that's the background there. Let me keep, let me keep going on for the no, others. Yeah, no, so, so let's do this, because uh, I, I do want to park here for a few minutes, because sure. I think from a chronic disease aspect in, in our society, really this underlying insulin resistance is probably one of the top couple driving forces for why most people suffer with their health. Um, it's to your point, it's something that's not well understood, unfortunately, by, um, many medical professionals, just because the paradigm's not there as far as how to work really with it. Um, you mentioned a couple key things here. You mentioned glucose levels and yeah, you know, I agree. I think, glucose on a lab is basically pointless. I mean, right. you, you, you're not seeing anything yet. That is the standard of care when it comes to lab testing someone's sugar or right. their insulin resistance. And they don't use the term insulin resistance, but they use the term pre-diabetic risk or diabetic risk because to your point, Insulin's job is to take glucose out of the bloodstream and store it. And you yep. mentioned fat, and that's certainly the largest 
storage container, but it could also go to liver and it also can go to muscle. And so there's skinny fat people out there, for instance, that are diabetic, but that's just because they can't store any more fat and therefore they become actually diabetic sooner than even obese people. Obesity sometimes is the saving grace between somebody actually becoming diabetic because they're able to hide a lot of that glucose into their fat cells. Bigger storage areas. Yeah, bigger storage areas. Now, unfortunately, eventually that also runs out. And to your point, the body gets tired of listening to insulin. So therefore, it just retains the glucose in the blood. Hence, you get the diagnosis of diabetes. But I want to kind of point out a few things because I think this is going to be important for people to understand when it comes to evaluating their own insulin resistance risk. Mm -hmm. And so if all you're doing is getting a standard blood panel that's showing you glucose level and you're quote unquote in the normal range, that's in my opinion, like we said, is basically pointless. It's not really showing you the risk. Um, The second thing that a lot of times people will get it's a little more common is your hemoglobin A1C level. And that's usually a, uh, a three month standardization or, 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 or average of your, your glucose. Yeah. And so they, a lot of times will look at that and say, well, you're actually trending high on this and therefore you might be diabetic or pre-diabetic, even though today's glucose, because that's the other thing we have to realize when we get a blood test, we're getting a snapshot of time. So yep. if, if for whatever reason, your glucose in your blood is low, the moment you're getting, especially if you're going from fasting early in the morning, your glucose may be low that moment in time, yeah. but your, your average to glucose, your hemoglobin A1C would be a better indicator. It'll actually kind Correct. of show you that, that three month average. And that's a lot of times what they will use to kind of finalize a diabetic diagnosis as it yep. starts to get into the sixes and the sevens and certainly higher than that that's when they start to kind of give you that actual diagnosis. But again, it's not a true picture of what we consider insulin resistance, which is what we now understand is the underlying mechanism of type two diabetes and the better lab really. And and, and what I run on everybody is a fasting insulin level, because that is actually a much more clear picture of what it is. And even that range, unfortunately, uh, is left to a lot of interpretation. You know, usually normal lab ranges will go up into the teens and 20 or whatever. And we really are seeing somebody, you really kind of want it under five uh, right. and, 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 and four and three, but no doctor will ever tell you that because they're just going by lab values. And so you have all these parameters. So all that to say, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is, if you really want to understand this underlying real metabolic problem that we have, and if you want to see how you're faring, don't ask for a glucose level. Don't ask for a hemoglobin A1C at minimum, get this fasting insulin level. Correct. And it's super simple to order. Your doctor can just put it on the blood requisition form. If you have to pay out of pocket for it, you're looking at like $10. I mean, it's very inexpensive, yeah. but it shows so much valuable information about how your body's actually physiologically functioning. Right. Now you took it a step further and you did this thing called the craft test. Now the craft test is similar to, um, 
uh, you know, and, and just because, you know, we have two kids, but I was going to say the same thing. I know okay. where you're going. Yep. Yeah. So, so <laughs> during pregnancy, every woman goes during that pregnancies and they do this glucose, glucose tolerance test. Essentially they, they go and they drink this sugary, sugary drink and they sit in the office and they measure your glucose levels, how quickly it rises, how quickly it descends. And then they determine if you have at that point in time, gestational diabetes or, or whatever. And so that's essentially kind of how the craft test is run, right? I mean, you drank a sugary drink. And- yep, it's exactly the same. They just test insulin instead of glucose. Got exactly it. Exactly the same. Yeah. Got it. And so and, and, and in your case, you mentioned several profiles and that in your case, your glucose levels or your insulin levels shot up as normal. Well, but... they shot up, they shot up a little higher than normal and they okay. took longer to return. Right. That's so, what I was trying to get to yeah. is, is a re, the decrease in it um, was longer than they expected. Cool. And, and ideally what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to drop back down to, I think under 60 or something within, yeah, the within a hour. minute. I mean, within an hour, it's supposed to come yeah, back within down. the first yeah. hour. And then after the second hour, it's supposed to decrease even further. And that the, the ad, if you add the first and the second hours scores, it's still supposed to be less than 50 or 60 or Correct. maybe 80 at the most. And that's how they kind of determine it. Um, so my question for this, for you is this, um, because I was thinking about this when I was looking at your, 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 your results, um, because it happens with women, um, for gestational diabetes. And it's this, there's a school of thought out there. If somebody is on more of a ketogenic diet, if somebody is not eating a lot of carbohydrates, for instance, yep. what happens is that's a muscle you know, air quotes, muscle that your body doesn't flex as often because you're not eating these high glycemic indexed meals. Therefore, your insulin response never has to bump up really high because you're chronically keeping it low. Correct. But then you get exposed to this extremely sugary drink and your body, because it hasn't quote unquote been training for this event, will sometimes give the impression that you don't have a good response Correct. because your body's not used to it. Whereas I've coached women who are doing ketogenic diets during pregnancy. I'll say, listen, for the two or three weeks prior to this test, start adding carbohydrates carb in yeah. carb load, because now you train your body to how to respond yep. so that when you go get this sugary drink, your body is ready for it. So my question to you long winded was, were you practicing a low carb diet prior to this or were you not? So, you know, being the computer nerd that I am, um, I made no dietary changes until I got all of my baseline blood work done. So I went and got 15, 20 tests, hundreds of dollars, hundreds, a lot, a lot of money <laughs> in blood work done. And um, before making any dietary change. So I was, you know, we we'll talk later about bad habits and how they form. So funny to hear me say this now, you know, I would still eat a bowl of ice cream at night. Right. I, so I had my CAC score freaking out about it, have a plan. And I refused to make any change to my current way of eating and living until I had all my baseline done. So then I, once I had that baseline, December 7th, boom, I know right when it was, cause I was waiting for go, right. Waiting for the, the gun at the starting line. So I was still eating carbs like I was and 
behaviors and patterns all stayed purposely stayed the same until I got my baseline. I got it. Yeah. And, and, and that makes sense. I mean, if you know that you're going to be getting some baseline testing, um, then yeah, trying to manipulate things prior to those it, factors. My measurements after the fact would be a little value. Exactly. So I was just curious. I mean, because, you know, initially I thought, well, maybe you were already practicing more of a ketogenic diet and possibly the reason right. you didn't score perfect is just that phenomenon that I just kind of walked through. Yep. Uh, but, but that's interesting that you aren't. So, so we're, we're really looking at a true um, concern here in addition right. to your, your CAC score as far so, as kind of things that we need to work on. Yeah, so I've got a craft test that demonstrates insulin resistance and have a family history of diabetes. Those got two it. things start to make sense. They start to click. Got it. Okay, very good. So insulin resistance, we know there's a, a common concern for you. Uh, let's go to oxidize LDL. Um, so how did you know your LDL level slash oxidation and, and what did you figure out as far as strategy to address it? Sure. So um, in all of the competing camps, it seems that oxidized LDL is agreed to be a problem. Um, there's some, some dissenters, but um, for the large part, oxidized LDL seems to be at least a result of a problem, if not the pro one of the problems. And so I, one of the tests that I got baselined was my oxidized LDL. So LDL oxidizes, you know, it's rust, right? Basically <laughs> oxidation. Um, and this is where the biology I, I've read and studied so much, it all just starts to blur a little bit in my mind. Um, but the, Oxidation is something you can test. It is a specialized blood panel that you can get done. So it is not your standard cholesterol panel. It's not a direct LDL. You are literally counting and measuring how much oxidized LDL exists in your body. So December 7th, I had that done. And my score was uh, four times above the upper limit of normal. So I'm a top performer in the world of oxidized <laughs> LDL. And so that that struck me. I said, okay, well, of these five things that I'm looking at, I'm you know, two for three right now so far, oxidized LDL. That happens, can happen through um, insulin resistance itself contributing to some of the damage. It can happen between a imbalance of the ratios between omega-3s and omega-6s. So those, that's a big, big component. So knowing that well, I also got my omega threes and six ratios tested at that same time. So I've got these all these panels. Oxidized LDL is high. I test my O three O six, and from that score, I don't know if I had ever seen a fish in my life. My <laughs> my my omega three score was so low. I mean, I, I surely just living at the beach, I should at least absorb it somehow, but uh, it was low. Um, that also. One of the other factors in that is I was a habitual eater of peanut butter. I would eat fistfuls of peanut butter. And one of the highest nut seeds, one of the highest nuts you can eat for omega-6s are peanuts. And so that started way back in my CrossFit days. Um, so, I, you know, a spoon of peanut butter would be a great little snack. Well, eventually a Teaspoon becomes a tablespoon, tablespoon becomes a two tablespoons. Then I'm eating a bowl full of peanut butter and then I have peanut butter squirted honey on top and I'm eating that every night, right? So 
my, my wife would go to the store and literally buy three, four jars of peanut butter to get me through the week. So wow. I was consuming buckets of omega-6s and very little omega-3s. And that poor ratio causes, it is the environment in which LDL oxidizes. So yeah, and so you're, you're bringing up some great points here. And so just for clarity, you know, we're talking about the omega-3 versus omega-6. And technically, it should be like a four to one, three to one ratio. And the average Americans, it's like a 20 to one, which yeah, is very house. inflammatory. And, and to your point, it oxidizes free radicals in the body, including lipoproteins, which is what LDL, again, um, is and can create damaging effects in, in arterial walls. And that's where, it, you know, kind of leads to the placking from the cholesterol and, you know, spiral effect. But, uh, you know, a lot of vegetable oils is very, that, that's basically what omega-6 is. And that's why in our society, we have so much of it is right. we see, you know, canola oils and other palm oils and safflower oils and sunflower oils. They're made in all these baked goods, chips, cookies, crackers, they're, they're, you know, everywhere. And if you're not careful about that ratio, it's very easy to get a, a really, really high omega-6 uh, dietary source in comparison to what we consider a healthier fat, which is this omega-3. Um, and you mentioned fish being uh, a major uh, a player of that, but, you know, we get in uh, other animal proteins and, 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 um, you know, these saturated fats, if you will, coconut yep. oil, uh, actually, I think that's, uh, trying to think if that's saturated or unsaturated. Um, I don't have that in front of me as far as that, but it, long story short, it's really these vegetable oils that is so, uh, problematic in, in our society. So you kind of recognize that that ratio is off. So to your point, you had this placking, you had this uh, LDL oxidized, you had the insulin resistance. Uh, we mentioned uh, insufficient magnesium and K2 um, okay. in, in, this, in, in, in the diet. And then um, you, we briefly mentioned earlier about high intensity exercise. And with your CrossFit background, I'm assuming you kind of put that perspective in there as maybe Correct. a uh, could be, component. yeah. And for those listening, there there are studies that demonstrate a higher incidence of high CAC scores in in long in high intensity and endurance athletes. Now, the positive spin there is there's in those studies there's no increase in all cause mortality. So, yes, they have a high C, higher CAC score than normal, but they also live longer. Usually, you know, it's always the usually. But so that was just another common thread that seems to fit. Sure. So you had all this data. Yep. You, you, you now, you, you mentioned the word go earlier. You, you kind of had that date in mind when you're going to really start implementing these changes. So kind of walk us through what are some of the important changes that you started implementing from what you are already doing to really start to move the needle in the right direction? Sure. So um, I was um, 185 pounds at my physical which I was, was heavier than I wanted to be. Um, and I knew I wanted to drop weight, wanted to cut fat, visceral fat around the organs, wanted to get that out. Um, and so I adopted a keto diet to drop weight, cut out the seed oils, cut out the sugars. And that's, I was strict keto, not dirty keto. It was whole foods only, um, less than 20 grams of net carbs per day. Sorry, net, not even net carbs, less than 20 grams of 
total carbs. Okay. Um, 60% of my calories from fat. I did increase my salmon and my mackerel, cut out all seed oils. I, in an attempt, and I, this is where I don't know, I just made an educated guess. I started eating uh, pasture-raised eggs and beef. So there are some argued pros and cons. Some say great, they have a better omega-6-3 profile. My thought was it's more expensive, probably not going to hurt me. I'm going to go with it, roll the dice that way. Um, I also uh, did intermittent fasting. So I on a 16-8 schedule. So I ate two meals a day between 1 and 7 p.m. And that allows uh, for that overnight fast a chance for my insulin, my body to respond to that insulin, allow it to come to a complete baseline and, you know, which, which when you're on a keto diet and your hunger hormone is not as active, a 16-8 intermittent fast is super simple. I mean, I was never hungry. It was great. You know. uh, what else? Regularly fasted every couple of weeks for 24 or more hours. Uh, took a few supplements, fish oil to get my omega-3s in, uh, magnesium, K2, uh, C and D3. Again, that me looking at what looked to be common advice, I, I will just try it. Um, and then other, I started walking three times a week, um, three miles, at least three times a week. Um, and what most people find a little crazy or OCD is I have literally recorded everything I've eaten since that date. Um, my wife is a saint for putting up with it. Uh, my children think it's normal. They've known nothing different. Um, I have weighed and recorded everything I've eaten at the house. And when I go out to eat, I'll take snap a picture of it and estimate to my best of my ability um, what I've eaten. That is just so I can have a history of what I've done, the impact it had on the blood work that I'm getting done. And when I decide to make tweaks and changes, I have my data to work with. Um, that's it comes naturally for me. I know most people don't do that. You know, most people aren't software engineers, right? So it just happens to be what I do naturally, and it's a little bit fun. So as twisted as that may be, <laughs> you know, it's fun to see, to make a change, observe it, and it play out. So that's that's um, it's what I've been doing. Yeah. So um, well, first of all. Uh, Kudos to you for that dedication uh, to do all those things and then track it and record it because that yeah. is not a gift I personally have. Uh, you know, my wife will do that. She will measure things out and use apps and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I don't know if I have the patience personally. Um, you know, I'm more of the big picture. Okay, give me concepts. I'm going to stick to them. And, you know, as long as I've trend in the direction I want to trend. I'm, I'm yeah. less as worried about it. And that's Absolutely. just my personality. And so I want, I say that because I want others listening, not to feel like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to track everything I ever eat. Uh, yeah, indefinitely. Absolutely. And I've, I've talked with others who said, how do you, how did you lose so much weight? What did you do? And, you know, I'll tell them what I've done, but then I'll immediately say, don't do what I've done. This is, <laughs> this is, this is me. Right. Um, right. I will say, for people trying to lose weight, um, what I have observed is what we think we know about our food is wrong. What we think a food contains is wrong. And so my advice, um, having having done this and dropped significantly lean and held it for 
you know, two years now. Um, I do recommend measuring your food for a period of one to two weeks, right? Because you're going to eat, you're going to repeat the things that you eat. Or we eat the same thing roughly every two to three weeks. Most people do. Once you get a handle on what those common foods are, you then are an informed person and you make informed decisions. But if you just go into it assuming you know, chances are you're probably wrong. Um, so I do recommend that for one or two weeks. Learn what you need to know and then, you know, just use that going forward. Yeah. And I think that's totally reasonable and doable. And to your point, I mean, we're creatures of habit. I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, uh, there's probably not a whole lot of variation in a three week period of anyone's diet. I mean, you know, once you kind of get those staples uh, for the most part, we're eating uh, basically the same thing. And, And just, and I tell people that when I coach them, as far as making these lifestyle changes, I'm like, initially it's going to take you a long time to walk to that grocery store to read labels and to learn all the things yep. that you've mentioned. But once you learn it and you get the learning curve behind you, it's just as easy as what you're doing now, which is right. your, you know what you're going into there to buy, you know what works for you, you know what's, but you got to put in the legwork and you got to yep. be willing to, to, to make those, um, you know, the, the concerted effort. Otherwise you're going to continue to get the same old thing, right? I mean, exactly. it's the classic uh, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And yeah. it's just not going to happen. So um, you implemented all these things. Um, so to bring us up to date, you know, I mean, how have you seen your health? Obviously you mentioned weight loss. So sure. that's great. Uh, what other improvements have you seen overall as a result of implementing these changes? So I have seen my weight go from 185 to 160 in two months. And then I've, I'm dropped even down further. I, f- I hover around um, probably 158, 160 right now. Um, and I've held that since January of 2021. Um, okay. it is my normal now it's, it's my current stasis is where I'm at. Um, so my, my, I've leaned out. Um, I, and before and after this, my, I got to dig get DEXA scan. So the full body density scan, uh, one of the top of the line for assessing body composition. So both bone density and fat and lean muscle percentages. Um, so when I got my first scan in January of 2021, I was sitting at 25%. Um, body fat. And in five months, I was down to 11% body fat. Wow. So in that five month period, demonstrated by DEXA scans, I lost 10 pounds of fat and simultaneously gained five pounds of muscle. So that was, that was a market change. Um, My omega-6-3 ratios greatly improved. So it was well in the danger zone. And within three months, it was right where it needed to be and it has continued to to stay in that safe and even better than optimal range oxidized ldl i continued to wrestle with um it immediately dropped to a a normal to the high end of normal when i was four times greater oxidized ldl came back down and as of april of this year i am well within the normal range and again it's just all for me able to make tweaks and see what see what i did HbA1c was high to begin with. Now it's lower. Uh, magnesium is testing well. Um, and so HSCRP, the, the measure of inflammation, also um, lower than it was to start. So, yeah, it's been, um, it's been neat to see the tangible results 
of protocols implemented, right? So it is, that's what I like. I like being able to see the, the results on paper. Um, yeah, you like the objective aspect of it because correct. I mean, in your document and, and what typically occurs for most people is you're going to have all these subjective changes, right? You're going to start feeling better. You're going to have these more energy. You're going to sleep better. You're going to have all these things that are fantastic and enough to kind of keep you motivated, but right. without the objective numbers, you don't know exactly the impact right. you're having in longevity. And so Correct. that's a nice touch that you've added. So a neat, a neat thing that I, um, in watching, cause I'm still get regular cholesterol panels. I'm not yet sold on their benefit or actually, <laughs> I mean, that's a poor phrasing. Um, I am, I'll get them. That's um, I'm questioning their utility, but for fun, I get them. Um, so historically, we, you know, we talked about my overall cholesterol being 165 and then on the keto diet, um, I observed my cholesterol spike as expected. So anytime you're and this was, I did not know this until doing the research, you come, you know, I'm sure you do. Anytime your body is losing weight, your cholesterol panels are worthless because it, you, re, you release you know, triglycerides and cholesterol, your body in process of losing weight. And until you have stabilized your weight for some time, your cholesterol panels are off. So um, I saw mine spike three months in, stayed high, stayed high, and then um, started dropping as expected, which was a good thing. And then only because I was getting re regular panels, um, my cholesterol went up higher than ever before. So I was sitting at 330 total cholesterol. Um, and I didn't understand why that was. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. I haven't changed my diet. I haven't, um, I haven't done done anything why is my cholesterol not continuing to trend back down and then i was able to look back at my data and see that uh, i discovered uh, cortados and espressos both made with heavy cream and um i also discovered uh, what was it i was making homemade greek yogurts and eating cottage cheese so i was just hammering um, my saturated fats, it was just way through the roof. And saturated fat is not, it's not a bad thing. It's not bad. The volumes that I was eating was questionable. And particularly if we can go in even more of the weeds, um, part of my learning is that I, I you test an APO, APOE gene. It's a genetic marker also called the Alzheimer's gene. Um, there's some connection between Alzheimer's and insulin, insulin resistance, um, diabetes, but, uh, I am an APOE 3-4, which is, those are the markers on the APOE gene. The people who are APOE 4-4 have, may have, questions are still out, research is still going on, may have odd responses to high levels of saturated fat. So, but, and also a strange thing to me was that um, in recent studies, unfiltered coffee, pro predominantly in men, may increase total cholesterol counts. And I was drinking two or three a day of espressos and cortados, unfiltered coffee. And it's odd that the, the, the hormone, the um, chemical that the paper filter filters out is the thing that in some people responds to cholesterol. So I was able to, looking at my, looking at my data, say, all right, well, I'm gonna just cut out all of those unfiltered coffees and I'm gonna drop down and cut back on all of the saturated fat that I was eating and immediately my cholesterols came back down. And it's swinging. We're talking a hundred points difference. 
uh, you know, from 330 down to 200 just in those changes. Yeah, I mean, just looking at so a lot, a lot of information here to unpack. And um, so, uh, listeners, I know we're going a little bit long, but but hang with us because I think we're going to dive into some inf- you know interesting information as we go along here. That's going to be really helpful as you make changes in your own health and maybe look at these data points because you know you're bringing up some very interesting anomalies that um, you know as you do the research, you'll realize is more common than not, but certainly can be um, concerning when you first start quote unquote doing all these healthy trends and things to see numbers that you've been historically told are bad go in the wrong direction. And, and you're specifically talking about cholesterol and, you know, unfortunately cholesterol has always been villainized or has been villainized since the invention of the statin drug. And so kind of, Anytime it starts to rise, that becomes an alarming factor for many physicians. And so therefore it, we equate it with bad. And then more importantly, we, we equate the LDL, the low density lipoprotein as the quote unquote bad. But as you mentioned, there's multiple types of LDL. There's large, there's small, there's, you know, different particle sizes and, and really they're not all bad and they're not all good. And depending on what the body needs, it's going to produce more and more. And so there's some physiological factors that we can kind of talk through as a result of that. But um, question, um, you mentioned cholesterol going up, um, you know, initially, but was your triglycerides staying low or some of those other factors staying within normal range? Oh, yeah, my, my triglycerides were decreasing um, so there was a slight swing. It was a slight, I'm looking at some of my data now. There was a slight swing up, um, maybe 10, 20 points, but um, it stayed low. So it never, my highest triglyc- triglyceride ever was a 93. Oh, um, wow. So that's and, still within normal, most people's optimal range. And so if you even get lower than that, and really from a heart disease standpoint, the the ratio most people is kind of understood as the, the, the standard, uh, the, those in the know, if you will, is having low triglyceride levels in comparison to higher HDL, HDL. levels. Right. So, yeah. so again, this is where you can use that lipid panel as some kind of informing, you know, you mentioned getting them and the utility of them. Really the numbers that really matter in my opinion is having a low triglyceride and a relatively normal to high HDL yep. level. And the other ones, to your point, I, I don't put a lot of credence to any of that. You know, the overall cholesterol level, the LDL levels, the VLDL levels, um, those are so transient and, 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 and depending on your fuel source. Right. So you, you, you mentioned, you know, eating more saturated fat. You also mentioned eating 60% of your diet from fat in this ketogenic state. And so for those of you that ever tried ketogenic diets or you're doing a ketogenic diet, you're essentially fueling your cells with fat ketones versus glucose, which is what the other form of energy is through carbohydrate and sugar. So you're basically telling your body, use this for energy versus this. And glucose travels in our blood very easily. It's transient. It doesn't need any help. Whereas fat does fat can't travel through your blood. And so they bunch together as a a unit of three, hence the term triglyceride. Triglyceride. And then they, 
have to be shuttled by this lipoprotein, which in this case, we're talking about a low density lipoprotein, or more specifically, initially, it's on a very low density lipoprotein. And what will happen when you're in a more ketogenic diet is your body will shed or, tr uh, or, or transform that triglyceride faster because it's being used by your energy source. And then your, L your VLDL then becomes an LDL, therefore raising the amount of LDL in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean it's bad and it doesn't mean it's oxidized. It's right. just the new fuel source that you're going. So a lot of times, to your point, I'll have patients or clients you know, they'll go on a ketogenic diet or they'll start a carnivore type of diet, eat more saturated fat, and they'll go get their cholesterol panel and they'll be like, oh my God, my LDLs are going through the roof. Well, to your point, one of it is you're losing weight. Yep. And so that's just part of the process of what will happen initially. But more importantly, it's because you're changing your fuel source. Correct. And so the very easy, you know, I tell people, if you're really concerned about what a doctor is going to tell you, and your panel, I always encourage them. Basically, what you did is all right, load up on carbohydrates about three weeks prior to your diet or before your lab test, and your body will switch back over. Yeah. You'll yeah. lower your LDL for the panel. And, you know, your doctor will tell you. Doctor's none the wiser. That's yeah, right. Yeah, right. They tell you everything is okay. But the reality is, it's, all you're doing is switching the fuel source. Right. And um, I think that's important to point out because we're going to have people who do a ketogenic diet or listen to this conversation and, and, and understand what you're doing is probably helpful. Go get a panel and their doctor is going to look at them and go, Oh my God, whatever you're doing, stop because right. you're killing yourself. You're raising your high, you, you, you know, your heart attack risk. But what we're saying is hold the brakes. Don't panic. The right. real numbers to look at is what your triglyceride levels are, what your HDL levels are, and what your fasting insulin Correct. levels are. Yep. And then, you know, really the, this oxidative LDL, yeah. you know, I mean, if that score is going down, we, you can have all the LDL in the world, but as long as it's not being oxidized, the risk factor becomes much, much less. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, I've spoken with guys who um, have done carnivore, strict carnivore diets for years, for years and go and get a CAC scan and they report zero. You know, yeah. Their heart are perfect. Now, down to the counterpoint, I, uh, there are also people who are vegan or vegetarian and and have done similar, right? So there's, it's just interesting to see that the um, the efficacy of the testing and knowing what you, your body is doing is uh, is invaluable because what I yeah. what, how my body reacts is not always how your body's going to react. Right, and that you know I've used the motto forever in, in my clinic is, you know, um, why, why guess when you can test, right. you know, and, and to your point, not every person is different or the same. Now there's some underlying, in my opinion, some factors that across the board, and really it has to do more with what you avoid versus what you add. And yeah. we kind of talked about stop eating sugar. Let's just yeah. start there. That <laughs> and seed oil. I mean, if you yeah. stop seed Those oil two. and, and, and sugar, I don't care if you're vegan, vegetarian, carnivore, keto, whatever you choose to do. If you're yeah. avoiding those things and the then metabolic choosing, issues and the yeah. <laughs> obesity issues, 
fall off the planet. Right, right. So we can simplify this whole thing for anybody that's listening. Now, I found what works for me better because I like building muscle is a higher protein diet. I feel good with that. I know there's research as a man. I want high testosterone levels. So I know that there's benefit with with resistance training and building muscle with with that. I have recently, though, um, I was much more Mm -hmm. carnivore-ish leaning. Um, I have really experimented personally in the last few weeks, especially now that I'm doing some more running and stuff. I'm really increasing my fruit and my raw honey. And I'm finding that that makes a big difference for me because now I'm getting some carbohydrates back in my diet, but it's not the grains. It's not the refined, you know, flours or anything like that. I'm getting it from a natural whole food source. And I'll tell you what, historically I used to cramp like crazy when I, uh, upped my running. And so, especially this time of year, I mean, it's 90 degrees outside, I'm losing ton of water weight on a daily basis out there exercising. And I can tell you that, you know, minus, you know, just overuse of a muscle cramp type of scenario, I have been really kind of cramp free as a result of implementing a higher, you know, right. fruit intake. And in, in my you, case, you, honey. you said that, um, you know, our stories were similar. It's the first time we've spoken. So starting in January, I did almost the same thing. So this, so all of 2021, strict keto, the entire year, done. Loved it. It's delicious. And then, but, you know, being the data guy I am, I wanted to tweak it. I wanted to say, well, what happens if I do something a little different? And so I, I've been introducing on some mornings half a cup of whole oats just to see what happens and fruit. So strawberries, you know, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, um, and, and some some other, but largely those things to the tune of 100 to 150 grams of carbs a day. And um, my weight dropped another two to three pounds. I think it was because that insulin response, my insulin has slammed to the floor for a whole year. Now I, it starts to exercise its muscle, flex a little bit, and it's able to shuttle things around a little better. And I had a similar response. But what I'm able to see in my blood work is that total cholesterol came down my size of my small LDL went up, which is some people believe is concerning, which I'm watching it, but my overall oxidized LDL dropped even further to the lowest point ever. And there's a reason why, I mean, they're called antioxidants for a reason, right? All those mm-hmm. berries that I'm eating. So it, it was neat to see that experience and experiment play out. That's, so that's been 2022 for me. Yeah, that's interesting to hear, uh, uh, you know, that you had a similar experience with that. And I'd I follow a handful of, you know, other doctors and, and, and quote unquote health experts and their biohackers and, and tweak some things. And so that was one of the tips that I kind of picked up on because I was finding myself just chronically cramping with this more ketogenic diet. And, mm-hmm. and so if you are on a ketogenic diet out there and you're finding that you're cramping more than you need to, um, certainly I've been an advocate for like using Himalayan sea salt and using some of those electrolytes back into your, you know, hydration strategy, which are all part of the process. But for me, I found that I was just too carb restrictive um, for what the activity level I was putting out. And that um, for me, adding those fresh fruits, and in my case, the raw honey into my dietary strategy on a daily basis, has just made all the all the difference in the world, and 
I'm going to encourage those of you that want to do that um, to try it out. Now, if you're diabetic, 300 pounds overweight, and you're looking to really radically change your health, then obviously the less of those things you eat, we find is, is better. Uh, you know, do the intermittent fasting, eat a more protein, fat-rich diet, really restrict those carbohydrates. And that is the fastest way of desensitizing that insulin um, receptors and therefore allowing you to really burn the fat and burn the weight uh, out there. But once you start to get past that point and you start accelerating, you start to tweak, you know, performance, that's when you can kind of play with some of these other factors. So whoever you are listening across that spectrum, you know, take what we're saying in your own paradigm and, and implement it properly to what your goals are. And so I, I would throw out, I'm sure you are aware, but you know, the ketogenic diet is, although it is fat and trending over recent years, it's a hundred years old. Um, it was, a, you know, originated in the early 1920s for the purposes of treating epilepsy in children. And so it, it is an, and John, Johns Hopkins today is treating epileptic seizures in adults and children with the ketogenic diet. So the, it just goes to show you that there is a significant, significant connection between what we eat, the fuel we give our body and the impact it has on not just our waistline, but how our brain works. And so you, mm -hmm. there, you'll hear people say um, brain fog. Well, when I did keto, I, my this brain fog cleared and I could think clearly. Well, there's significant evidence for that, or at least a corollary that you can draw in that they are treating epileptic seizures with a ketogenic diet. So if you have kids out there and they struggle with that, just don't take my word for it. Go, you know, go research, go do a quick Google search. And yeah, you, you're, you're bringing up uh, the, the point that the brain fuel preference is fat. Yep. And so um, our, our brain really thrives on healthy fat. And so to your point, the more fat based your diet, healthy fat based your diet is, and the less carb and glucose, uh, you know, in high index that it is, um, you know, the better your brain fuel is going to be. And exactly. And just health. Eat, what's, eat what's natural. There is no such thing as a pop tart tree, right? You're not going to no, go. Not. That's, a true. Pop -tart. That's true. Well, man, I, I could, I could, continue this conversation forever and, 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 and listeners, if there's things that we said or things we haven't said that you want us to kind of tackle, um, you know, leave us a comment, reach out to myself, reach out to Bing. Um, sure. you know, we'll, we'll do another podcast about other things that we're doing personally and, and tweaking. Cause there's lots of things that we didn't even get to cover today, but, but for the interest of time and, and keeping everybody, uh, listening. I'm going to try to wrap things up for us. Um, so let's do this being a um, couple final questions. And you've already obviously shared so many tips and some of the things that you did, you did a long list of things to, to really kind of improve your health and, and really the things that you did, um, even though you were doing it with the mindset of changing a few things based on your own numbers, let's just be honest anybody with any condition out there, period, doing the things that you did will most likely move their health in the right direction. I mean, that's totally. just foundational things that you were already doing because like I've already mentioned, insulin resistance is an epidemic 
of underlying factor for all chronic disease out there. And that's just what plagues our population. And so that alone strategy is going to change things, you know, in addition to some of the other things you did, but if you could distill it down to maybe three tips to give a guy that's ready to kind of stop where they are and start moving towards their health destiny, what would be just three practical tips that they can start with? Um, I should have thought that you would ask this question beforehand and I would have prepared. Um, <laughs> but easiest thing, stop sugar, right? If you don't worry about measuring, don't do anything, just stop sugars and carbs. You're going to get plenty of carbs and things from other sources. You'll get all your fruits and vegetables. That's fine. If the simplest thing you can do is just stop the sugar. Um, the other is, and I've talked to people who want tips and advice, and they struggle with doing another diet. They struggle with how to lose weight. They struggle with um, the failures that they've had in the past. Uh, it takes a different train. It, it takes a different way of thinking. Um, it's less about what kind of diet that you want to adopt and more about what kind of person do you want to be? And that's, it's a different, it's a change in your, how you think about the questions that face you, because it's not about, it's less about what you want to eat at any given time. It's about who do, the person that I want to be, what decision do they make in this scenario? And if you can just take a second to separate those two, those two ideas, um, because we can, I, I could feel like eating ice cream, but I don't want to be that person who decides to eat ice cream when they're upset or stressed. I want to be a different person. So keeping in mind who you want to be makes it a little easier to make decisions when, you know, emotions or stress is um, hitting you. And then um, recognizing, in my case, um, the habits. So I have a blue chair in my living room. And from 2018 until the end of 2020, every night, I would sit down with my wife, we would watch Netflix, and I would have a bowl of some kind of carb-filled snack. Um, and I would have that not because I was hungry, but because my butt hit the blue chair, right? And that trigger was, it was wild. You know, as soon as I sat down, like, well, I'm hungry right now. You know, I had just eaten. But because I sat down, I was hungry. So recognize that those events can trigger behavior just because our brains are dumb and they like to run on autopilot. So those... I would have had a better answer for you had um, you know, I thought in advance, other than being aware that you can get a lot of this testing on your own, apart from your physician, um, and start taking control of your own destiny. No, I think you're right on point. And, you know, I find that sometimes the the raw, quick answer is, you know, the most valuable, because that's really, truly, subconsciously what you want to share. Sometimes we get a we, we, we put too much thought into to Wells answers and, and, and sometimes they get convoluted and, and all that kind of stuff. And your second one reminded me of the whole classic of, of be, do, have concept. You know, a lot of times people think, well, I'll start doing that when I have this so that I can be so-and-so right. versus mentally saying, though, this is who I am as a result of who I am. This is the actions I'm going to do. And as a result of those actions, that's when you acquire, you have the things right. that you want. 
and, and diet and, and, and I mean, all state, all areas of life, you can put that principle, but you know, nutrition and exercise is that as well. I mean, yeah. I tell myself, I am a guy that gets up and exercises every day. That's just mentally who I am. So right. therefore, guess what I do? It's not even a question the night before, am I going to get up tomorrow? Well, it, the, the answer is already there because I'm already identifying as the guy that gets up exactly. and exercises tomorrow morning, period. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that exercise daily becomes that blue chair that I had. That's right. It is, it, it is the trigger. It is the thing. So it's just shifting over time. So, yeah. So all of you out there that said, well, I can never give up this or I can never eat this way or whatever. That is all mental. Yes, you complete. make the decision that that's who you're going to be identify as that and start making those changes, then it will become much easier to accomplish. Not that you're not going to have hiccups, not right. that you're not going to have setbacks, but it will be doable, but it's got to first start mentally. And so I love, I love that tip, man. I think that's right on point. So I do have one final question for you. Uh, but before I do, I just want to say, man, what an honor this has been, man. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I want to just thank you and acknowledge you for spending some time with us for, yeah, you know, taking the time to, to journal all these things and your willingness to even share it with your region and, and other people that are interested in this. I mean, heck, that's how I learned about you because another PAX member who's been influenced by you thought I should have a conversation with you. And so, um, you know, thank you for that. And I appreciate that. And I know that your region appreciates it. And those that get to listen to this podcast are going to appreciate it. So thank you. Um, thank if you someone, yeah, no problem. So if someone wanted to reach out to you, if there are some things that you mentioned today or testing that you, you've done or things that we, or if they even want to see your document sure. and, um, you know, your data, what is some best ways for them to contact you? So uh, email is great. Um, you can do it at rsknowles, that's R-S-K-N-O-W-L-E-S at gmail.com. And you're welcome to place the link to my contact info or, or the document is open to everyone on Google. So you can. Yeah, so I see that's a well. Google Doc. So I'll, I'll place that link in the show notes so that people can just kind of click on it and read. And my contact actual... information is at the bottom of that. Yeah. Okay, perfect. So yeah, I'm actually just... looking, I'm actively looking for a physician, a researcher, you know, someone in academia to, who's interested in a guy nuts enough to take all of this data and, and play with it. I'm willing to run experiments. Okay, cool, yeah. man. That's awesome. Well, we appreciate that. And thank you again. So my last question for you being is this, what is your definition of wellness? Mm. Oh, that's a good one. My definition of wellness is being able to live a full, active and healthy life into old age. I'm less concerned now about my ability to bench, deadlift, and, you know, do the compete in the CrossFit games. I, I don't want to break a hip when I'm 80, right? <laughs> so wellness for me is that whole picture. And it is, it is being able to maintain a mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual um, completeness throughout the decades. Thanks for listening to the Hunt for Wellness podcast. Please rate and review our show and be sure to share it with your F3 brothers. As always, we are looking for inspiring stories to share and health experts to interview. So if that's you, please reach out to me at bones at huntforwellness.com, on the nation's Slack at bones, 
or Twitter at HFW Podcast. And until next time, this has been Bones guiding the packs of F3 Nation on their hunt for wellness. <laughs>